from Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world. Stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers magazine, The National Conversation, it's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, November 15th through Friday, November 19th, 2021. It was a week marked by the politics of the pandemic, the economy, and our system of justice. We're about to embark upon a bold hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. Our guests include Dave Ramsey, Lars Larson, Harry Hurley, and Sean Spicer. Welcome to the power-packed one-hour radio show featuring opinionated yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations as well as the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do their daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations in the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Fasten your C-Crane CC earbuds. Speaking of which, this installment of the Michael Harrison Rap is sponsored in part by C-Crane, makers and distributors of great radios. Visit their website at ccrane.com or give them a call at 800-522-8863. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, the national mood and psyche tied with the Julius Jones clemency and the subject of capital punishment. There's no question about it. Psychological study after psychological study indicates the national mood is in the dumpster. In an 11th hour drama, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt granted last minute clemency to longtime and high profile death row prisoner Julius Jones that put the discussion of capital punishment back into the national conversation. Number nine, the opioid addiction spike. More than 100,000 Americans. Americans, a record-breaking number, died of overdoses during a recent one-year study by the National Center for Health Statistics, up almost 30% from the 78,000 deaths in the year prior. Opioid-based substances and artificial opioids, legal and illegal, make up a majority of the drugs at the heart of this crisis fueled by widespread use of fentanyl, a fast-acting drug that is a hundred times as powerful as morphine and deadly as hell when abused. At number eight, the Alex Jones case tied with the state of journalism and social media. A Connecticut court found conspiracy theorist Alex Jones liable for harm inflicted upon the families suing him for damages, resulting from his insistent and persistent claims that the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre was a hoax that never happened. This story feeds into the ongoing struggle journalists and commentators, pundits and talk show hosts face in seeking truth over victory and avoiding the trappings of purposeful partisan misinformation 
information that are mucking up the national conversation and the truths in our culture that are supposed to be self-evident. At number seven, U.S.-China relations. President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week in an hours-long virtual summit designed to diffuse escalating tensions between the superpowers, particularly in the military arena regarding the increased posturing by the Chinese that threatens neighboring Taiwan's independent democracy. Although they failed to come to an agreement on many issues, Biden and Xi did reach a plan to cooperate on mutually opening up oil supplies that immediately resulted in a lowering of fuel prices. At number six, a tie between climate change, immigration, and crime and violence. The burgeoning crisis at the southern border is considered a glaring weakness of the Biden administration, and people are still dissecting the successes and failures of last week's International Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Crime and violence continue to be a problem on the streets of cities such as New York, Chicago, L.A., and San Francisco, emanating from the widespread misunderstanding of the difference between police reform and police defunding. At number five this week, the Kyle Rittenhouse and Ahmad Arbery trials tied with the ongoing discussion of race relations. At the time we put this week's program to bed on Friday morning, the jury was still deliberating in the Kyle Rittenhouse homicide trial playing out under the glare of the media spotlight in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And key testimony concluded in the Ahmud Arbery trial, with both sides set to provide their summaries on Monday. Both the Rittenhouse and Arbery trials connect to the ongoing discussion of race relations in America that's been a dominant component in the national conversation about reckoning during the pandemic era. At number four, the Steele dossier, tied with discussions about the declining Biden-Harris approval ratings. New revelations debunking the so-called Steele dossier that was central to the drumbeat of accusations by the Democrats and mainstream media regarding President Trump's alleged collusion with Russia, Russia, Russia in the 2016 election prompted a number of news organizations such as the Washington Post and the New York Times to amend aspects of their coverage of the story. Meantime, the current administration is taking a beating on a number of fronts, including reports that there's growing tension between the Biden and Harris camps within the executive branch, a situation that prompted White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki to send out a late-night tweet indicating that the embattled Kamala Harris has the full support of President Biden, an act that only increased suspicions that all is not honky-dory between the president and vice president. At number three, the January 6th investigation tied with the relationship between Trump and the GOP. Lots of attention has been paid this past couple of weeks to the indictment of former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, a key witness to and alleged participant in the activities leading up to the attack on the nation's capital for contempt of Congress charges, as well as the sentencing of the so-called QAnon shaman to three years of prison. On the national political front, all eyes are on Donald Trump as he wields considerable political influence over the Republican Party heading into the 2022 midterm election and has yet to announce his intentions about running again for the presidency in 2024. Meantime, Rupert Murdoch continues to distance Fox News from its formerly cozy relationship with Trump, and one-time ally Chris Christie has openly blasted him for clinging to the charge that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen from him. At number two, COVID-19 vaccines, masks, mandates, variants, and politics. New versions of the Delta variant in Europe, variants of the variant, are stirring fears that in spite of the 
the efforts to vaccinate as much of the public as possible, we might be facing yet another deadly wave of COVID-19 as we head into the winter months. And in the process, the non-productive partisan polarization of so many aspects of this crisis continue to spread angst and anger through all social and political strata of our society. And at number one this week, economic issues focusing on inflation, the supply chain, labor and politics. The cost of food, housing, and basic services continues to rise as speculation grows over just how serious and long-lasting our 31-year high rate of inflation is going to be going forward. And of course, debate rages over the long-term impact, for good or bad, that the Biden trillion-dollar-plus budget going into law will have on the economy and the future financial health of America. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. As mentioned earlier, the economy is the most talked Talked about subject of this past week on news talk shows across America, with inflation fears topping the list of subcategories that also include problems with the supply chain and a confounding labor shortage. People are worried about the short and long-term future of the dollar. Will inflation destroy people's savings? For some insight, we turn to a radio star who's been preaching the wisdom of staying out of debt and the value of saving for decades, Dave Ramsey. The big word in the economy. And it does relate to debt. And it does relate to all the things that you talk about in terms of people's finances. The big word this week, and I fear it's going to be around for a while, is inflation. What are your thoughts about inflation? Well, this is an unusual kind of inflation that we're experiencing right now. Inflation simply means rising prices. It's a simple definition of the term economically. Um, But you know, the inflation we had during the 70s up into the Carter era was uh, a much more disturbing inflation to me than we're experiencing now. I didn't see this coming, and I kind of feel dumb because I should have seen it. And I think a bunch of people should have seen it, because here's exactly what happened that's causing this. It's a, You can look at it and see it clearly now. I can. Anytime there's an earthquake, a major earthquake at sea, following that, there's a tsunami. Uh, you know, a 20 story wave sure. crashes on shore caused by the earthquake. We didn't see the tsunami coming after the earthquake of the pandemic. See, when you shut down factories and you shut down and disrupt demand and you inject federal money at record levels into an economy, you've destabilized everything in the capital markets. You've destabilized everything in, uh, in the marketplace. So the labor, there's a labor disruption, there, there's a supply chain disruption, the factories are not producing things, so there's a shortage anytime, simple, seventh grade economics, the supply-demand curve, when you have a shortage of something, what happens? Prices go up, and there's an urgency, and so you create a shortage, you always increase prices, and no one set out to create a shortage, but when the people were at home quarantined and not in the factories producing the goods and services, when they come back and the demand comes back before the factory supply lines come back, you've got shortages in virtually every industry right now. And then when you finally start getting the stuff out, the supply chain is bottlenecked and backed up and government is doing things to mess it up rather than to fix it. And they messed up the labor work supply to get the stuff made and get the stuff delivered with their artificial insertion into that. So it's like a perfect storm. So that's the bad news. And all of that is causing inflation. Every bit of that is causing inflation. The one exception is fuel prices, and that's caused by Biden policies. 
I see. Now, but, but, so the good news is it's yeah. a tsunami. But, but ah. I mean, the bad news is it's a tsunami. The good news is what happens after a tsunami? The water goes back out and it levels out fairly ah. quickly. Now ah. you got to clean up the mess after. Right. But right. It, but it's not a, it's not an ongoing decade long set of got inflation. It. Got it's it. It's an artificial thing caused by supply demand disruption. So you don't think people should suddenly panic and say, "Oh my gosh, uh, I, I shouldn't be saving anymore. I got to put my money into Bitcoin, or I got to put my money into real estate, or I got to put my money into into something else." Uh, and, I, and I'm not going to turn this into financial advice at the moment, but just in terms of that big picture, people are sitting going, what's yeah. going to happen to my dollars when, in fact, you know, uh, the Ramsey philosophy has been save and, and hang on to money, um, hang on to your income. Um, you don't see an immediate reason to panic. Yeah, here, here's the thing. When you've got panic going on, your critical thinking skills dissipate. Your brain quits working because you're going to fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And you, you've got cortisol coats the brain cavity. And so you quit thinking clearly when you panic. You're, you're supposed to just get out of the way of the car because it's about to hit you. You don't have to have a discussion about cars hitting people. you got to get out of the way. So that's what panic does. But fear does not bring good thinking. And so uh, it, it brings negative. Th- I mean, it messes up your critical thinking skills. So f- when you're in a situation like that, when you feel fear coming out of your stomach up into your throat towards the back of your eyes, and you physically can feel it, when you feel that, you're getting ready to do something stupid with money. When you feel that tightness in your throat, you're about to be stupid. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether you've got a, degree, a PhD in economics. You're about to be stupid because your critical thinking skills have shut down. You're no longer being wise. You're being reactive and fear always causes that. So when you've got that kind of trauma coming at you, you got to remember what my one of our Ramsey personalities, two PhDs, Dr. John Deloney says. He says, facts are your friends. So what are the facts of this situation? Have you ever seen in time in economic history where some kind of Bitcoin type thing rescues an economy? No, never. No, never. Have you ever seen gold prices rescue an economy? No. What rescues an economy? Steady, reasonable people buying reasonable things with reasonable dollars, saving reasonable dollars, making good, steady decisions. And ask yourself, you're 30 years old listening to this. You're 40 years old listening to this. What does the 10-year from now, ver- 10 year from now version of you, if you're 30 when you're 40, if you're 40 when you're 50, What do you really think you're going to see in the American economy as a result of what's going on right now, 10 years from now? A laughable distant memory is the answer to your question. Think about 911. The stock market went down after the cowards flew planes into the towers. Think about that. Stock market dove on Monday morning following that when they reopened. They closed it for two days. They reopened it. Dove 500 points in 12 minutes when it reopened. Now look at the stock market today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well said and well taken. So how can people, I want everybody listening to this to check out your uh, your movie, Borrowed Future, How Student Loans Are Killing the American Dream. How can um, our listeners, what's the fastest way for them to see this thing? Borrowedfuture.com, Google Play, Apple TV, uh, Amazon Prime. Any of those places I can get it. It's easy. 
That's nationally syndicated radio talk show host Dave Ramsey. As mentioned, Dave Ramsey's production firm, Ramsey Solutions, has just produced and released a full-length documentary film titled Borrowed Future, How Student Loans Are Killing the American Dream. It's available for streaming at Amazon Prime. Coming up next, the consequences of words, the search for truth in a world of conspiracy theories and misinformation as we head out to Portland, Oregon and chat with nationally syndicated radio talk show host Lars Larson. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Rap. Hey, fellow radio lover, the holiday season is officially here, and I have a fantastic gift idea for you. Buy that special radio lover in your life a brand new radio, and pick up one for yourself while you're at it. A real radio that you choose from a gigantic selection of radios, not something you've settled for because of limited choices and supplies that calls itself a radio. See, Crane is the company that specializes in high-quality radios, AM, FM, shortwave, big ones, small ones, high-power ones, battery-operated ones, even radios with cranks when no power is available. Yes, radios that can even access the Internet. See Crane is the place to go to find a unique holiday gift for that radio lover in your life, and perhaps one for yourself as well. Check out their catalog and website. Call 800-522-8863. That's 800-522-8863, or visit them online at C. Crane.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison rap. There's been a huge buzz in the talk media universe this past week about noted conspiracy theorist Alex Jones being found liable by a Connecticut court for causing pain and suffering to grieving families for his ongoing remarks and accusations that the heinous Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre was a hoax and never actually happened. Now we'll wait and see what amount the jury determines Jones must pay the families. Joining us from Portland, Oregon, is Compass Radio Network syndicated host Lars Larson. My immediate reaction is, I've met Alex. I've met, I've met the man. I know the man. I know the kind of shtick he does on the radio. And I have great admiration for people doing different things on the radio. They don't all have to be like me. But I don't like putting false information out. And, and my audience knows that. I will debunk even things that seem to defend or, or support the conservative point of view on something, saying, nah, yeah, that would be nice if that was true, but uh, I'm not gonna, I am going to let facts get in the way of a good meme if it's not true. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, when Alex came out and said things about what happened at Sandy Hook, the essential bottom line there had to be, he was essentially saying, all you people who lost children in one of the most horrific events America's ever seen, it was all big stage play, and none of it was real. And I thought, if you're going to say that, it better be right, especially when you're dealing with human beings and their children. Especially, you have to be right then. You know, if people lose sight of the difference between being wrong and being deceitful, 
There's nothing wrong with being wrong if you, you know, if a weatherman on, on television says it's going to rain tomorrow and it's sunny, you don't say the guy's a liar unless he has a deal with an umbrella company. <laughs> you know, then you go, oh, oh, I see. In other words, and if you're wrong, you're supposed to say you're wrong. You know, people are always asking me, what do these talk show hosts really feel? Do they really believe what they're saying? And I say, I don't know what's in their heads. I hope they believe it. Well, isn't it just show business? I said, hey, my opinion is, whether it's show business or, or, or fantasy or you're talking over the backyard fence, if you're telling somebody something, you should not set out to deceive them. You should try to tell them the truth. You could be fun or whatever. But doesn't that make sense? I mean, a lot of people hide behind the, it's show business. People should listen at their own peril. I get that accusation all the time saying, oh, you don't actually believe this stuff. And I said, look, to thine own self be true. I actually believe that. And believe me, Michael, there are times where I tell my producers, you know, the facts on this one are going to have me condemn this or support that. And it's not going to be popular with my mostly conservative audience. About a third of my audience is liberals, and they hate what I say most days of the week. And that's okay. We invite naysayers on. But I tell them, this won't be popular, because I'm going to have to say this thing that a lot of conservatives believe I think is dead wrong. But I'm going to say it because I'm going to be honest. And, Michael, if I was simply saying, what is going to be the most popular message for my audience so I get the biggest audience and the greatest number of advertisers, there are probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of times over the last 25 years where I I would have amended what I was saying and basically hid my light under a bushel and said, oh yeah, I believe in that, even though I didn't. I have never done that. I've never said anything on the air that I don't honestly believe. Or say, you know, it's information that you're not sure of, but here's what they're saying, and we'll get sure. back to you with more. Sure. It, just, just being, you know, honest. I have a theory about conspiracy theories, and tell me what you think. Sure. Um, when, when, when a guy like Alex Jones was starting out, um, he, he, he wasn't so much a conspiracy theorist famous for that genre of broadcasting and communication. He, he dealt with conspiracies, but he was sort of like a, an alternate um, medium. Uh, he, he went beyond, he digged, he found things, and it, it, it was more organic. But as Alex Jones or that ilk of broadcaster became extremely popular and started making a heck of a lot of money with advertising and all kinds of uh, this, this business infrastructure, the audience that grew to listen to them demanded more red meat, more yep. conspiracies. Yeah, this guy, this guy, every minute he's on, you're hearing something wild. And when you suddenly have to come up with something that might come up once every six months or once a year, a true conspiracy, a true, you know, bit of business that nobody knows about, that's okay. But when everybody expects it from you, when you're making a ton of money and building an audience, that's when you get into trouble and that's when you start to make up stuff. Does that make sense? Yes. And you're driven by the wrong motivation. Because you say if yesterday you had a great story that wasn't true, and today nothing pops in the news that, that affords you that opportunity today, so you say, well, I, I, I'll make something up. Now, there are different variations of this. Uh, Phil Hendry used to have fake callers, mm-hmm. and the joke was that most of his audience, probably 95%, knew they were fake. You know, they'd call in and say, I'm the uh, Nazi scoutmaster from, New- from Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> you know, and, and I could never do what Phil does, but it was very clever. But it was an open joke that, a lot like parody, uh, like the Babylon Bee, it's fake, 
but everybody knows it's fake. And then you had a few percentage of people who'd call in outraged, thinking that it was being presented as real. The second person who did this and did it brilliantly was, was Art Bell, who would entertain you know, crazy theories about things. He talked about science, but he also talked about, you know, conspiracy theories involving aliens and this and that and the other thing. And you can entertain an idea. If somebody says crystals have cured my cancer, you say, well, I'll entertain the idea. But that doesn't mean I endorse it or tell my audience, you should believe this is the God's honest truth, that, that all this stuff is real. But it's one thing to entertain it. It's another thing to invent those things. And especially put yourself in the in the position of one of those parents of children slaughtered at a school, and the grief will be probably lifelong for you and for everybody in your family. And then you get a guy on the radio who's saying, eh, it was all big stage play, it was all fake, uh, the children didn't really die, nobody got shot. And, and you say, hold on a second, you can't say those things because it's damaging to me and my family for you to say that the death of my child, which is a real thing, and I think we all accept it was real. I mean, I never entertained the idea that this was a so-called false flag, and, and yet Alex did that, and he did it to make money. And, Michael, I can't endorse that. I endorse a lot of crazy stuff in radio that I don't do, but I say, well, so-and-so does it very well. But this is really mean-spirited when you start to do this to grieving families. Do you think there's a certain mindset of individual out there that is particularly prone to believe this, um, if you'll pardon the expression, BS? Yes, there is. But the, the funny thing is, Michael, there are people who believe it, but I tell them, listen, the real world is crazy enough all by itself. I mean... If I smoked uh, Washington wacky weed because it's legal out here in my home state of Washington and smoked dope and drank whiskey every night, I couldn't make up the crazy stuff that actually comes out of the minds or minds and mouths of real people out there. I don't need to make anything up. The real world is crazy enough. You know, the little guy in North Korea is. Could you have invented him as as a bad guy in a really bad movie? No, but he's real, and he's really got nuclear weapons. So why do you need to invent crazy stuff when the world delivers every single day? That's nationally syndicated radio host Lars Larson joining us from Portland, Oregon. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Let's swing back to the East Coast now and check in with Harry Hurley, who hosts the morning show at our affiliate in Atlantic City, New Jersey, WPG. More than three decades ago, before he went into radio, Harry was Donald Trump's vice president in charge of one of the then real estate mogul's hotels in Atlantic City. All right, Harry Hurley, tell me, as you're sitting there, uh, you're a conservative, you're one of the most important people in the state of New Jersey on every single survey, and there are a lot of them, and uh, you're a political force. What do you do when uh, one of your buddies, Chris Christie, gets into the news coming up with um, all of this uh, anger and uh, his feelings that are negative about Donald Trump. And uh, does that make its way to the air on your show? And uh, how do you deal with that? And how did the listeners feel? Well, it did this morning. Uh, one of the biggest things with me is loyalty. And this, these are two friends, President Trump, who you know I worked for, mm -hmm. and we kept in touch long before he ran for president. We never lost touch in 40 years. Governor Christie and I became friends uh, before he ran for governor. So it always hurts. And he was a very close Trump confidant. I think what Governor Christie is doing right now is, is sort of like dancing on the head of a pin. 
He's being critical, but he's trying not to cross the Rubicon. If you notice, in every critical, biting comment, there is, but we're still friends. We've been friends for 25 years. There's always the qualifier. So he's staking his ground. He has a new book coming out. He wants this to be about the future, not about looking back, because obviously he wants to be the next president of the United States. And a lot of people want to be the next president of the United States, and they do see weakness in the White House right now. So Republicans feel that whoever wins the Republican nomination is going to be the president and that they probably won't even be running against Joe Biden. So I take it with a grain of salt because people that are friends can have a little rift and then they can come back home. Two people can't be the nominee unless they're running mates. So one of them will be the nominee. 80% of Republicans want President Trump to run again. If he runs, he'll be the nominee. If he doesn't run, Chris Christie has a good shot. Do you think so? You really think Chris Christie is in the, in, in the running? It didn't occur to me that that's what he was thinking about at this point. Uh, well, I think that's exactly what he's thinking about, and he's carving out different ground. Mm-hmm. He's carving out that we need to go forward. In other words, go forward with me. I, I think absolutely he is interested uh-huh. in running for president. Yeah, because you know he was pressed. I was watching a number of interviews with him because he's, he's out there on the circuit, and um, he, he was pressed into saying, well, first of all, who did you vote for? He said, I voted for Trump twice. He said, would you, would you vote for him again? After he's saying these things, you know, Trump says made him sick to his stomach and that he's lying and that he can't believe a president said these things and, and that the, the whole assault on democracy thing um, you know, with the uh, continuingly claiming that the election was a fraud, et cetera, et cetera. And then when asked, would you vote for him again? Christie said, yes. And how could you do that? He says, because um, the Democrats are that bad. You know, are, 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 there's an expression, Michael, that we might be bad, but they're far worse. So there's mm-hmm. a belief that even on the Republicans' worst day, they're better than what's going on right now with the national Democrat scene, which is turning very, very hard left socialist. Um, you really think that you, you believe that uh, you don't think that there's a, a continuing uh, debate within the Democratic Party uh, about which direction it's going? As well, evidence, not serious debate. Look who keeps winning. I mean, it, it, President Biden campaigned. As a moderate, I mean, remember, they disqualified Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, if South Carolina had not been so perfectly right there and Clyburn do what he did for President Biden, Biden was almost down and out for the count. Uh, But the Democrats knew that Bernie Sanders would be a disaster in the general election, especially with independents. He would lose with the Republicans. He would lose with independents. And he would even lose some... Uh, more moderate Democrats. So they they all coalesced around Joe Biden and his basement campaign, not out of love for Biden, who had always performed poorly every time he ran for president. Look at the numbers. Terrible. But they had to stop Bernie Sanders because they had to stop Trump, and they would not have been able to do it with Bernie Sanders. So oh, absolutely, uh, the, the, the ones that feel differently aren't controlling the... Uh, they don't have the power right now. A very small minority of the Democrats are of this hard left socialist philosophy of governance, but they're controlling the entire party. Let's switch quickly while I have you on the air to another topic that um, is in our top 10, and that is the, um, the January 6th committee. 
and uh, the the look at what happened that day. A big piece of news: um, the um, so-called uh, QAnon shaman, I, I believe his name is Jacob Chansley, is, has yeah. been. Um, the verdict came in. The, the sentencing has come in, and I think he's got like four years in prison or something, which they say they're sending as a signal. What are your thoughts about that? Well. None of that was good. I, I've always been outspoken about it. It wasn't. It wasn't good. It wasn't a good look. Uh, it, it's bad for the republic. Uh, notice how, because he fits though. The Democrats. It's like an attorney when they have the facts, they pound the facts. When they don't have the facts, they pound the table. Their agenda is toast right now. In two different surveys that have come out, both very credible. The Republican generic sample is 13 points better and 11 points better than the Democrats. It's going to be a wipeout uh, in the 2020 midterm or 2022 midterm election. This guy is unfortunately a scapegoat. He's just walking around with horns and a furry vest, and he's perfect. You know, per red, blue face, uh, absolute perfect uh, symbol for what they're trying to accomplish. The January 6th hearing is political in nature. If it wasn't, it would have a fair representation of both parties. It's nothing like the, the committee that my former governor and friend Tom Kane co-chaired with Lee Hamilton, where you had a Republican chairman co-chair, Democrat co-chair. This is a political exercise. This is the new version of Trump Russia. That's Harry Hurley, the longtime morning host at our Atlantic City, New Jersey affiliate, WPG. Coming up next, a deep dive conversation about national politics and the Steele dossier with former White House press secretary turned Newsmax talk show host, Sean Spicer. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap, as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Former White House press secretary and current Newsmax TV talk show host Sean Spicer has written a new book titled Radical Nation, in which he slams the Biden administration. I caught up with him this week. How's it going? How are you enjoying the day-to-day activities of being a television talk show host? 
Well, it has been. It's been 18 months. We wow. launched um, on March 3rd, 2020. Yeah, 2020. So it's been 18 months. I've, I've loved every day of it. It's even more than I expected. Um, I and, and frankly, what's more rewarding, and you know this from all of the stuff that you cover, um, is, you know, you can want to put on a great show. You can think you are, but you, you get ratings in this business. And mm-hmm. it's been humbling to watch people, mostly through word of mouth, come to the show, come to Newsmax, and tell their friends, tell their colleagues, and and watch the network grow and grow every night. And and we've now seen, you know, us start to really take on CNN. And um, and, and as a show, it's just been phenomenal. We've had some amazing guests. We've had some amazing conversations. And I I I love it. I love that I get to do this every day. And um, you know, um, it's, so it's, it's been unbelievably fun and rewarding. And like I said, for me to, to know that every time I am walking down the street or through an airport or something and people will say, Hey, I watch your show. I told my friends that they got to watch it. It's just really, it's a, it's a very kind of, um, humbling experience. Oh, I, I'm glad that you're enjoying it. You're certainly doing very well at it. Your, your, your background in, in politics, public relations, and of course, what I as an observer of media have always considered to be one of the most uh, challenging talk show host jobs in the world, and that is being press secretary to the president. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But, you know, you know, I, I will I will say that that is unequivocally true because that was sort of a different kind of show. Yeah. But, but I think that what's different, especially in my case, is I've been there, right? I, I've been the White House press secretary. I, I was the RNC chief strategist. Mm-hmm. I've been in the military 23 years. Um, like So when I talk about something, it's not pontificating about it. It's not saying this is probably what's going to happen. I can say I've been in the room. These are the kind of discussions that are happening right now. This is how we decided it back in the day, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I... Um, so it's just it, to me, it's it's a very rewarding thing because I can have I can cover news and issues in a way that I don't think anybody else on television can. Well, you do come from a certain perspective that gives you that credibility and gives you that objectiveness. That's the, that's a key. It's a, it's very difficult in today's media environment to be both objective and subjective and to balance the two because we're in new territory. Yeah. And also, I just want to mention without belaboring it, that one of the, 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 the cool things about the last 18 months that you've been in the uh, position at Newsmax is that not only are you growing your own talent and your own show in that role, but you're part of something that is on the march. I mean, Newsmax's growth has been concurrent with it. You're, it's like being on a, a Super Bowl football team during their run for the playoffs. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of excitement going on on a lot of levels. It, it's, it's like a, I, I actually, I think your analogy is right. I think it's also like a startup. You yes. feel like everybody's invested in it. They, they, you're all experiencing it together. You're growing together. Um, Correct. And um, and so it's it's been fun to be part of it. I, when I stopped, I think the only other evening show, I think Greg Kelly was was on, but that was it. And then we slowly built the rest of the primetime lineup and filled out the daytime. So it's been neat to be part of it, but but especially at the beginning. Now, you back to when you were the White House press secretary, I, I, I think you took a call from BuzzFeed when they said they were moving ahead with the uh, now infamous Steele dossier. And now uh, this past week, one of the big buzzes in talk radio and television has been uh, the latest uh, page in that ongoing saga. What are your thoughts? So I'll never forget that. It was January 10th. It was during the transition. Uh, 
I, I BuzzFeed dropped the entire dossier. Jake Tapper called me and said that within a few hours he was going to publish uh, uh, at least the description of what had happened. And um, and to this day, Jake has not ever corrected his version of what happened, which is entirely false, um, because James Clapper and James Comey admit that the version that, that Jake Tapper printed about President Trump being handed a two-page dossier was false. It did not occur like that. I was actually in the room. Um, so I, I, it's just, if you think back on this, and I tend not to like to do this in life itself, mm. uh, but it makes it difficult sometimes to say, think about this. In the entire tenure of the Trump presidency, and at least my tenure as press secretary, was focused on this idea of a false premise that somehow, you know, something had happened. We learn now about who paid for it, how how much, you know, that the, the, there was disinformation to given to the FBI, and yet that became the focus of everything. Every question was through the lens of of, of um, Russia and collusion, and I had been on the campaign. I was there for the transition. I was there for the White House. I knew it was false, and yet you know, um, I couldn't help but I can't help but think, especially this week, how things would have been different if that wasn't the case. If that talking point hadn't existed, if the media hadn't been so relentless. So, so you see that as a key talking point because, because you know, I look back at it as a whole morass of talking points and information, misinformation, every side telling the truth and every side lying. It's all muddled up. Um, Trying to make, I guess historians are going to try to make sense out of this period in which we're still living, uh, in terms of we're still in it, you know, the, 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 this era, um, and, and try to sort it all out. But basically, you see the the dossier um, in this case lie or misinformation as being one of the key situations that um, dealt a terrible blow to the reputation of the Trump administration. Well, respectfully, I would say, Michael, I don't know that it's objective. I mean, the FBI is bringing charges against the guy for lying. We do know who paid for it. Christopher Steele has now admitted that it wasn't firsthand information. So the, the people who actually brought it mm-hmm. have admitted their their complicity in this. Yeah. So I don't think – I think objectively you can, you can still – now, you've got people like some folks in the Washington Post that are still saying, well, it could be still partially true. Um, the bottom line is, though, that I think there's enough credible sources that have – and firsthand sources that have said, okay – I was I lied about this. I wasn't right about this, etc. Mm. So I, I I don't think there there are some things that I think you can argue over. Um, this is not one of them. No, I'm not. I, I didn't I mean think, when I said I, when I said no, no, that. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, and I don't think you did. I know right. what you were saying, but right. I'm saying that I, I think that that right now you've got some folks in the media that are trying to make the case about well, it's not entirely this or that. And it's gotcha. like, Yes, it is. And and I also think that like I, I was there every single day the first and last and fourth and 17th question was about Russia. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, if you take that off the table, maybe we could talk about tax policy or healthcare or infrastructure, how different it would have been. I get you. And, uh, and you understand I was not implying that uh, the, the, the information that's coming out now is not true. It's just that uh, no, no, it, no. it's set against the backdrop of a period that as historians going to look back and say that we were all crazy. And I get it, but that's, that's, I get, and I'm sorry, I, cause I know exactly where you're coming good, from. Good. That's but my a, point is, but, but my point is, is that there are things, and I, I probably should have answered this better. I think that there are points to your question that historians can disagree on about, you know, a little more of this or a little less of that. But at the end of the day, there are certain things that should be indisputable. 
And and if the source document, you know, i.e. the Christopher Steele himself is saying, yes, I didn't, I lied about the fact that it, I really didn't have firsthand knowledge of this and the individual wasn't really, uh, uh, you know, in direct connect with these folks. And then you have other people that are lying to the FBI and, and are, then, then there's an aspect of there should, that shouldn't be in question. Now, you can take the Adam Schiff position as well. It still wouldn't have mattered. And it's like, okay, that's ridiculous, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, um, historians shouldn't be able to quibble over this. And it's funny that I have two chapters in a brand new book that I just put out called Radical Nation that talk about the complicity of the media. And you see this now where they've been they, – these guys were given Pulitzer Prizes for this. And I write about this in the book that the Washington Post changed their title to Democracy Dies in Darkness in February of 2017. And yet they're the ones who keep pulling the shade down on, on in, in creating the darkness. Fascinating. The book Radical Nation, uh, the subtitle is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's Dangerous Plan for America. I want to talk a moment about that. I'm not going to keep you long, but um, uh, I was thinking about you the other day when uh, uh, Jen Psaki tweeted that um, Kamala Harris uh, is a um, a vital partner to uh, the president and a bold leader who's taken on key important challenges facing the nation um, amid rumors that the administration believes she's a liability. I, I was thinking about you and I said, I bet you that Sean Spicer is rolling his eyes and saying that's an, ad- <laughs> that's an admission of guilt <laughs> as opposed to. Well, it's just, if you have to say it, right, then it, it doesn't it, it rings hollow. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like if right. your wife goes, do I look nice? And you have to say, yeah, you look nice. It's, it doesn't have the same effect as if you just said it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea that these guys all have to tweet that she's important says something in itself. So I, I, I get a kick out of the fact that if you have to tweet that she is a vital partner, she's not a vital partner. But I have a, I have a chapter in Radical Nation that talks about, it says Kamala Harris president waiting. None of this should be a surprise. And, and I write about this because she wasn't chosen, and Biden was very open about this. He didn't choose her because she was the most qualified. Mm. Yeah, she fit. She fit the bill in terms of the strategy, and uh, yeah. and now they're living with it. Um, with, without getting into all the details of the book, um, it is exciting that you have this new book out, and um, the basic uh, premises we talked about before that uh, they're cooking up a bad uh, a bad brew for America. Um, summarizing it as quickly as you can, what is the, the, the nature of the danger that you see um, Biden and Harris presenting to the United States? Right. So the reason I called the book Radical Nation is that I believe that that the policies that they're espousing will take us into an area that, that there is no return from. If they make D.C. a state, if they don't stop the flood of uh, immigration over the southern border, if they pack the court, if they pass all of this additional trillions of dollars that's government spending, at some point you can't unwind the clock and say, okay, well, we'll just elect a Republican and undo it. Once government has its hands on things, it's, it's, it's for good. And so if they were to make D.C. a state, that gives them two Democratic senators for life. That's, that's the reality. And I think that people need to understand the full impact. And so the whole idea of radical nation is to give people an understanding of where we're headed if we don't stop. If, in fact, uh, the Biden-Harris administration is, you know, falling apart and the, the ratings, their approval ratings are going down and, 
and uh, perhaps the Republicans will do okay in 2022, and then we're looking at 2024. What is your position in terms of the relationship between Donald Trump and the GOP going forward? Do you see him as the likely uh, candidate in 24? Uh, are you supportive of that? Or do you step back a little bit now that you're not you know, in the administration or immediately after you've been in the administration, you're now in your own career, you're in the media? What do you see in terms of that delicate balance between Trump, his influence, and the GOP heading toward whatever the remedy for those that want to replace Biden or the Democrats in 2024? So I look at it this way. If Trump runs, he is the nominee. I, I, it's just, I, I think that's a pretty objective way. I think in terms of the grip that he has. Um, so if he runs, he will be the nominee. It doesn't matter what I think, what anyone else thinks. If you look at the standings, and frankly, not just, but also how the game is played. In other words, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday. Somebody would have to show me a path that is that that shows anybody else that could be they could put, put that in jeopardy. But right now, he's the only one that can run the table on that. So if he runs, he is the nominee, hands down. And, and that's kind of just, frankly, how I look at, the, you know, how I look at the situation. Okay, so, so then the, the question isn't going to be, would he win uh, the nomination or would he win the presidency? It's if he chooses to run. And that's based on a number of circumstances that you and I could go for two hours about right now. So we'll, we'll spare the audience that. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, but you're right. And that's, that's, but that is the question. And frankly, we could go for a long time and I'm not sure how much insight because he's going to hold those cards close to the vest and make a decision when he sees fit. But the, the reality is that, you know, I can make a case either way that he's going to run, that he's not going to run. But once he makes a decision um, one way or the other, we'll have an answer that, you know, we'll know whether he's going to be the nominee or not. That's former White House press secretary and current Newsmax TV talk show host Sean Spicer. Sean's just written a new book titled Radical Nation, Joe Biden's and Kamala Harris's Dangerous Plan for America. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation looking back at the week of Monday, November 15th through Friday, November 19th, 2021. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelattalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications in conjunction with Talkers Magazine and Talk Media Network. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Thank you.